Martin, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We are back with live shows every day after a few weeks of rest and relaxation on my part, recharging for the run-up to the election and the end of the year. Always great to be away for a bit, but even better to be back in the chair here and back in conversation with you and our guests. Up first today, normally when America's elections draw to a close, there is a smooth transition from one leader to the next, even back in 2000 during the really raucous Bush-Gore recount. The act of concession is one of the things that allows our political system and our democracy to actually function. And it's something that separates our nation from many others, where the transfer of power doesn't always come so easily. Today, we want to examine what could happen if that presumption of good behavior went out the window. To examine this, we are joined by someone who has taken a comprehensive look at what he calls our, quote, nation's creaky electoral machinery. Barton Gelman is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, a staff writer for The Atlantic, and the author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. His piece, titled The Election That Could Break America, appears in the November issue of The Atlantic. Bart, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Yes. So let's start with this. What prompted you to look into this election in terms of Trump's potential unwillingness to concede if Biden does, in fact, win next month. What is it about right now that uh, inspires this piece? It seemed to me that Trump's unwillingness to concede, and I can explain why I'm quite confident about that, had big implications. And I wanted to explore what those implications were. Uh, It turns out that for an incumbent president to signal uh, that there is only one acceptable outcome to the election and for an incumbent president uh, to be bound and determined not to concede defeat if it comes uh, has cascading effects on the system that can interfere significantly with the electoral process. Hmm. So you write that Trump will never concede. uh, And I want to dig a little bit into that question. One of the things that propels our republic forward each each election and, and even in between is the fact that it doesn't necessarily rely on one person to make sure that something happens. There are institutions and systems in place that go on no matter what an individual might say. So, so this idea that Trump might never say, hey, I lost this election and that means that uh, I need to transfer power to the person who won it, doesn't mean that the transference of that power won't take place. I think that's an assumption that we all make uh, about about the country. Uh, Tell me why you see this as a bigger threat, I guess, uh, to that, to those institutions than, than anything before. And am I naive for having faith uh, in those institutions. 
You might be right. I'm not sure that this is going to go badly. What I'm sure is that this is not going to be a normal election <laughs> in which we simply uh, count the votes and find out who won and uh, everything goes according to uh, its historic norms. It turns out that concession is actually the way we end elections. There's no grand empire who tells the candidates who won and who lost, uh, who blows the whistle at the end of the game mm -hmm. and puts up the final score on the scoreboard and, and that it doesn't matter uh, what the opinion is of the players. Uh, the game is over and there's a winner and there's a loser. We don't have an umpire with that kind of authority in terms of elections. And so the way we know they're over is that the losing party comes out and there's a kind of a, a standard template for that. You, uh, you say the American people have spoken uh, and uh, the other side won and your cause will live on, but you recognize the other fellow as uh, America's new president and, uh, and he'll be your president too. That's what people say. Uh, and that person always comes out first, you'll remember, uh, before the winner comes out to make his declaration speech. Right. Uh, it's always the loser who comes out first. and blesses the winner. Uh, it, it is, as the political scientists say, constitutive of the authority of the incoming president. Uh, because transfer of power is kind of an unnatural act. Uh, people with power seldom give it up easily. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has been uh, one of the great accomplishments of this republic that we have done it more often than and for longer than any other country, that we have had elections uh, that peacefully lead to a transition of power. And what has our president said about that? Uh, he was asked, would he pledge? He was asked actually in response to my article, uh, would he pledge uh, to cooperate in a peaceful uh, transfer of power if that's the way the election came out? And he began by complaining about the mail ballots. Uh, he said, if you get rid of the ballots, then we'll have a peaceful, right. and he stopped himself. <laughs> He stopped his sentence midway and said, we won't have a transfer, frankly. We'll have a continuation. And, and that difference, that signaling, that sort of forecasting of, of the difference, uh, I, I guess it, it reminds us all to take a look at these, these institutions that you know, carry the republic forward and, and maybe to assess that – that this isn't the the right way to do this. Uh, you write that you know concessions employ a form of words that linguists call performative speech. They don't describe or announce an act. The words themselves are the act. Uh, but but our electoral system then presumes that that act will happen and that the actors will act rationally and uh, according to good behavior. Is it is this a weakness? I guess. Uh, of our system that we ought to be concerned about in in grander terms. Well, I think it could be the the uh, the way we conduct elections is not centrally managed in any way. There are ten thousand five hundred local jurisdictions around the country, most of them at the county level, uh, that actually administer elections each according to their state and local. Uh, uh, regulations, laws, and even traditions. Uh, they then report results up through a complicated system to statewide authorities, uh, usually a secretary of state. Uh, 
Uh, and eventually, the Secretary of State, after a, an initial count and a canvas, uh, meaning an extra check uh, on the results, will announce a certified result. But that doesn't come for many days, uh, even in a normal election year. Mm -hmm. uh, what we have this year is not a normal election year, uh, in large part because of COVID and also in large part because of the nature of the president we have right now. Uh, and because there is expected to be a, a significant multiple of the number of mail-in ballots, there will be many tens of millions of mail-in ballots this year, uh, many, many more than in previous years. And they take longer to count, including in Michigan. Uh, we're expecting that there will be a substantial delay between the time people cast their ballots and the time we know for sure who has, who has had the most votes. And meanwhile, we have a president who has the capacity to interfere significantly uh, in the counting and canvassing process. Um, I, you know, I want to I want to pause and take just a, a, a another sort of deeper look at um, at some of the dynamics here and and at history. Uh, and I want to go back to 2000, which most people, uh, most adults at least, would would have memory of as the last time there was a real dispute about uh, about a presidential election and how it would end and uh, how we would count the votes that that were cast. I can remember giving a speech. Um, in I think late November uh, of 2000 uh, in Baltimore, where I was uh, the, the deputy editorial page editor at the Baltimore Sun at the time, I gave a speech to uh, to some folks in a in a retirement home, and uh, it was about what was going on at the Supreme Court at that point and the litigation over over the ballots and and what the outcome might be, and I can remember there being such fear among the people that I was talking to uh, that this would not have a resolution that, that either side would, would accept, that, uh, that, that it seemed like an intractable dispute between uh, the, the, the lawyers for George W. Bush and the lawyers for, for Al Gore. And then, of course, in, in a few weeks, it all came to an end because the Supreme Court said, can't keep counting these ballots. We're going to stop that. And that meant that the election was over. Al Gore conceded and George W. Bush became the president. It was sort of a, an anticlimactic in some ways um, end to what I, I felt people were, were worried was going to be this, this prolonged and maybe unresolvable uh, dispute. Uh, talk about how that informs this moment, the fact that we had this dispute in 2000 and that it, in the end, and, and lots of people felt like it ended unfairly. I, I'm one of them. I, I, I thought the Supreme Court was wrong about what it decided. But everybody just accepted that and, and we went forward. What's different about this moment and what does 2000 sort of tell us about what might be different in this moment? So there are quite a few things that happened in 2000, uh, and it was a, a an extended national trauma that we did not know who was president, that the two sides were actively disputing it. And it took us, I believe, 36 days 
to get a result. Mm -hmm. uh, but some of the things that we remember about 2000 aren't quite the full picture. So first of all, let's remember that in 2000, there were some things that were not disputed. Nobody said that's not the count. Nobody said there has been fraud. Uh, the election is rigged. We can't trust the numbers that have been given to us. It was very, very close. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were normal procedures for a recount. And the two sides argued in court about uh, the, proce the procedures themselves, about uh, what the rules meant. And they argued on the ground, uh, vote by vote, about whether this vote should count and, and uh, who did this person actually vote for. So there was some confusion about a butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County in which uh, people accidentally voted for Pat Buchanan when they were trying to vote for Gore. Uh, and they said so. Uh, right. So how, how should you interpret voters' intent? What does it mean if there's a hanging chad, if uh, someone tries to punch through a card and the hole isn't punched all the way through, uh, there's a little flap hanging from it. Does that count or does that not count? Uh, these were the kinds of things that they were fighting over. They were not fighting over the fundamental legitimacy of the count or, or the procedures. And there's two more things about it. Uh, one is the Supreme Court did not actually uh, end the election. The Supreme Court said the recount had to the stop. The recount had to stop, right. That was December 12th. It was not until December 13th when Al Gore came out and said, I accept the finality of this result that the election ended. Because, in fact, he still had constitutional means of fighting on uh, because the Electoral College had not yet met. Uh, the selection of electors was not yet final. Uh, Congress had not yet done its final uh, official count of the electoral vote. And he had means of interceding at each of those. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the major forums uh, for decision would have been a joint meeting of Congress, of the two houses of Congress, presided over by the president of the Senate, who was him. He would have presided over the uh, final count. Uh, and some of his supporters, some of his staff, to urged him to fight on it. It was mm -hmm. because he conceded that the election ended. And there's one more thing that happened of significance that was not very widely noticed at the time. While the recount was still underway, uh, while the, the dispute was still alive in court, the Republican legislature in Florida voted, uh, well, the House voted and the Senate was about to vote, to appoint electors for Bush, regardless of the outcome of the mm -hmm. count. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out uh, not uh, that many people know this. Uh, the Constitution says that electors are chosen by any means chosen <clears throat> by the state legislature. Pardon me. <clears throat> the, the legislature gets to decide who the electors will be. And so the Florida Republicans uh, took advantage of that. And one of the things that uh, may be happening in this election cycle, because the Trump campaign is discussing it internally, is that Trump might be losing the popular vote in, say, Michigan, uh, and nevertheless ask the Republican legislature uh, to declare that the count is fraudulent and rigged uh, and untrustworthy, and therefore to appoint Trump electors regardless mm -hmm. of what the Secretary of State says is the count. 
Right, which would which would introduce an entirely different form of uh, constitutional crisis, I suppose, uh, into the election than what we faced in 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 two thousand. Uh, okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Barton Gelman of the Atlantic, and we want to hear from you. How are you feeling? about the election that is going to take place in our country in just about three weeks. Are you voting with a mail-in ballot or have you decided to go in and vote in person? Uh, do you have predictions about the outcome? And what do you think is going to happen after the election? What do you make of these ideas that the president has put forward that maybe he won't accept the outcome of the election because he thinks it'll be fraught with fraud and other chicanery? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Barton Gelman, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden, and the American Surveillance State. He has a piece coming up in the November issue of The Atlantic titled The Election That Could Break. America. He and I are talking right now about the strain on our political institutions, uh, on our republic itself, because of the profound political and cultural tensions that exist uh, in our nation right now, but also because of the occupant in the White House and what he has said about the upcoming election. Donald Trump has said that he might not accept the outcome of this election, that he might challenge it. Uh, from a legitimacy standpoint and not uh, acquiesce to the peaceful transfer of power that we have known in this country since uh, the beginning. We really want to hear from you this hour as well. Uh, And really the question I think boils down to this. How much faith do you have that our republic and its institutions can survive this moment, this moment where People are as divided as we are and where uh, the leader of this country uh, is as dug in as he is on the idea that he should continue to be the leader and that uh, the voting that takes place in three weeks, uh, if it doesn't go his way, must be fraudulent. Uh, Are you confident that we can get past all of this and that the Republic Republic will continue uh, the way it has? For several centuries now? Or are you worried that things could just come apart and that uh, we'll see violence perhaps break out as a result of this? Or that we'll just be at this kind of stalemate where Donald Trump says, I'm staying in the White House uh, and uh, Joe Biden is not able to take over as president in January. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter. Put comments there, 
and we'll work you into the conversation. I'm really eager to get back to our callers because we were away on vacation for two weeks. I missed you all. I missed hearing from you about the things we talk about here on Detroit Today. So uh, let's get back at it. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Bart, I want to talk a little more about the Supreme Court. Uh, We were talking about what happened in 2000 before the break, uh, and you were talking about this question of how states might select uh, their electors uh, if, if there is a dispute if the president raises a dispute about uh, about counting the votes, the court could play a role in that dispute, I suppose. But there are also several other issues that could end up uh, in the federal courts and then ultimately uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, talk about the role that the court might might end up playing here. Well, first of all, it's not a sure thing that the court will be involved. The Constitution uh, provides a mechanism for deciding on the president that does not include the courts. The mechanism is that uh, the states appoint electors. These are actual human beings uh, who are pledged to one uh, candidate or the other. So in Michigan, there will there are 16 people who are pledged to Trump and 16 who are pledged to Biden. And uh, the state uh, chooses which electors will go and cast their ballots based uh, on the popular vote. Uh, the Electoral College then meets on December 14th. Congress, the new Congress uh, that's just been elected, meets on January 6th uh, formally to count the votes, to open the certificates and count them. Uh, and if there are disputes about which electors should be counted, who won uh, one state or another, then Congress decides those disputes uh, according to uh, an old statute called the Electoral Count Act, which unfortunately is uh, quite opaque and apparently self-contradictory in places. Uh, And so the Supreme Court comes in potentially uh, if if there's a dispute over uh, which electors will count and uh, if the the court is persuaded uh, that, for example, the Electoral Count Act is itself unconstitutional. I do not think the court is going to be eager to get involved here. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts is very concerned about the legitimacy of the court in Mm -hmm. the eyes of the public. Why should nine unelected officials decide grand questions of uh, the course we're going to take as a nation uh, if it's perceived to be weighing in uh, in a partisan way a second time after Bush against Gore? Uh, Roberts, I think, is quite worried that uh, this will undermine the court as an institution. And I, I think there must be a natural reluctance to uh, sort of to dance on the puppet strings of the president who has uh, confidently forecast already that the court will decide the election in his favor. Mm-hmm. Um, if the court were to get involved, could it end up being, again, the thing that that settles the question in in a way that um, that people accept, uh, as you point out in in, in two thousand, <clears throat> what the court said was you got to stop counting these votes the way you are in in Florida, and Al Gore had uh, a choice to make about whether to continue to pursue this issue in other ways or to to accept for the republic's sake uh, the outcome and say look we got to we got we got to move forward. 
Is there a potential for the for the court to play that kind of role here, or are people so dug in? I guess that uh, that that anything the court would say would be seen uh, as partisan and illegitimate. That's such a good question. I mean, the question is whether uh, whether other large institutional players here, which are are, are Congress and the candidates, would say, "Well, that's your opinion," uh, but it it's not our opinion about uh, about the, because each branch of government has an independent responsibility. Uh, to decide what's constitutional. Now, it is, since Marbury against Madison, uh, an old landmark case, it, the Supreme Court's job to say what the law is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, Congress could say the Constitution leaves this question to us. And if, for example, the Democrats take the Senate and the House and Senate both agree that the count favors Biden, and the court rules otherwise, who knows what kind of standoff might ensue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, If you want to join the conversation here about what will happen in three weeks when we go to the polls, uh, what will happen uh, after Election Day this year if, uh, if Donald Trump decides that the outcome uh, is not the way that uh, that he thinks it ought to go. Uh, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. Ed on Twitter says, there is no place in the Constitution that the loser must concede. Uh, that's a that's a really good point. I mean, the, the, the Constitution doesn't really spell out how this is supposed to happen. There is, I guess, a, a, a history of tradition and and process that has uh, that has developed over time. But but Bart, talk about what would happen if Donald Trump just says, I'm not going to leave the White House. I mean, he has almost hinted at, uh, at that being the action he would take to say, I'm still the president and uh, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, what would be the process for, I guess, evicting him uh, from from the seat of power if if he really just decided I'm not going to leave? Well, Ed is right. There is no place in the Constitution that says the loser must concede. Uh, But I think it slightly uh, misframes the question to ask, what if Trump loses and refuses to leave? In that case, it's fairly simple. Uh, The system knows how to handle a question like that, though it's never had to before. I think Trump would be uh, firmly escorted out of the White House. His mm-hmm. bags would be packed for him and he'd be gone. Uh, the question is whether the president has the capability as the current chief law enforcement officer of the country and as the current commander in chief of the armed forces to prevent a consensus from forming about whether he won or lost, uh, to prevent a decisive outcome. Because although con- the Constitution does not uh, say who must concede. It also doesn't say exactly how to settle the question of who won. Uh, for example, suppose that Michigan sends two competing slates of electors uh, to Congress to be counted. Uh, the governor signs a certificate uh, that says that Biden won. Uh, the Republican legislature invokes its power under Article 2 of the Constitution to appoint electors for Trump. Mm-hmm. It now comes to Congress. The Constitution in the 12th Amendment does not specify what to do 
if there are competing slates of electors. Congress is going to have to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I want to get to some of our listeners here. Uh, Mary Jo in Detroit, you're up first. What's on your mind? Good morning. So I am worried on a much more local and granular level that in Detroit, on the equipment that they use to count the votes, there are modems that can be hacked. I am really worried about that. Hmm. Uh, Mary Jo, I don't think you're the only person who has those kinds of uh, concerns. Uh, Barton, uh, some of what you're talking about here is the sort of Creaky electoral machinery. That's uh, the the phrase that you use. I, I, I gather that uh, what Mary Jo is talking about here, these concerns about uh, the sanctity of ballots and the safety of ballots, is is some of what uh, some of what you're talking about. Um, uh, respond to Mary Jo, and then just sort of talk about our electoral infrastructure and why you think it's so creaky. Since 2016, there's been a significant investment in the security uh, of our uh, electoral counting machinery, the the actual voting machines and the networks that connect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're they're considerably improved. Uh, but the uh, digital security experts say there are always holes. Uh, I don't know the modem situation in Detroit. Uh, it would be difficult. Uh, to change votes, to change, to actually uh, hack into voting machines and change votes at scale. Let's say it's hard to do it for a large number of machines um, altogether. Uh, but uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, and the National Security Agency uh, and local officials are concerned about this and are doing their best to prevent it. Uh, I. I I don't think that that's the principal threat that we have right now to our election, but my crystal ball is no better than anyone else's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, Mary Jo, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Dan in Detroit. Dan, welcome to the show. You there, Dan? I am here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I originally called because I was conflicted with the fact that it's so obvious that this day and age that we can account for everything that's out there when it comes to voting. I mean, you know, you look at banking, you look at uh, all the financial stuff that gets transferred through electronic, through mail, everything's accountable. And so he's going to, he's going to, I mean, Mr. Trump is going to try and discount the fact that we don't know what we're doing. And the thing that upsets me the most is that he actually thinks that he can put himself in a position that says, your voting is off. Well, what happened with Al Gore, the Mm. popular vote one? The electoral situation is not accountable for the accurate amount of people that really do vote. Mm. And the electoral system needs to be revamped Mm. Uh, and i can't understand why we haven't addressed that in a way that actually makes serious change yeah dan help me with that i I really appreciate the call and and that's a great question uh bart the 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 institutions we have 
that have counter-majoritarian dynamics involved in them, and the Electoral College is one, and it's the one that, of course, uh, will be on people's minds most as we go and vote. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, they contribute to this doubt that people have that someone like Donald Trump, who is, uh, who is you know, uh, uh, motivated to, to preserve his own power, kind of taps into uh, with, with these questions about voting, that, that because you have these institutions that, that suggest that the person who loses can actually win, uh, people are maybe a little more susceptible to, to the idea that, that there's something afoot. With uh, with voting and and you know Dan's question is why haven't we dealt with that? But I think the the, the larger question is what effect those institutions have on this kind of situation where you do have somebody casting real doubt on the legitimacy of the way that we choose uh, choose leadership. Right. Well, the thing about Trump is he's not going to be sitting back necessarily as a spectator and saying. Oh, my God, my team did not just lose that game. Uh, he won't just be giving a ma- a, an emotional reaction or a matter of opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has the capability of 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 raising doubt about the actual result uh, by his own administrative actions as president. For example, uh, you could have an election board certify a result for his opponent and the justice department uh, working for mr trump um, could say it has opened a fraud investigation uh, because it believes that there were many fraudulent votes counted which cast doubt on uh, certification and so now there are two different authorities giving two different results right right uh what what about uh, what about institutions like the Electoral College, uh, which was designed, you know, in, in the most uh, favorable telling of it uh, as a way of blunting tyrannical majorities and, and the, their power to, to sort of punish or completely disregard political minorities? Um, but, of course, has played a, a different kind of role in, in modern elections, both in 2000 and uh, and uh, again in 2016, granting the presidency to someone who just doesn't have uh, a majority of, of popular support. You know, is this part of what is ailing us right now? These the per- preservation of those kinds of uh, institutions in a place where people increasingly, I think, are are just of the mind that uh, we ought to we ought to vote, and the person who wins ought to ought to be the winner. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a startling thing in the context of democracy uh, and in terms of all the usual things we imagine when people vote to say uh, Hillary Clinton got almost three million more votes, three million than Donald Trump did in 2016. Uh, but the other guy turns out to be the president. Um, it just goes against their intuitions about what a democracy ought to be. And in fact, the founders were, as you say, uh, distrustful of uh, majorities and wanted to interpose uh, sort of solid citizens uh, in an electoral college who would uh, be a corrective in case the people made the wrong choice. Uh, 
we're less and less inclined to think these days that there is such a thing as a wrong choice made by the people, that the people get to make the choice. And so the continued existence of the Electoral College does raise legitimacy questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Will in Detroit. Will, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I just want to say I love the show. I listen to it most morning. Thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah, so my take is um, I really worry about the state of the republic being able to handle an election that is not decided overwhelmingly that night or early the next day. Hmm. Um, I worry about what happens when, because of the lag due to mail-in voting, because of the pandemic or, you know, some of these counts that have to take place, you know, starting on election day, um, that it's going to cause civil unrest to a point that I'm not sure if we're going to be able to totally recover about from mm. it. I, I really worry about it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate the call and I really appreciate the candor. Uh, of of what you're saying there. And I think there are a lot of people who have similar fears about what will happen, you know, on November 3rd and, and afterward, uh, Bart, there's, there's kind of two things going on there. And Will's question one is this, this issue of not knowing uh, the outcome as soon as we normally do because of the mail-in ballots and the delays that that, that may cause, but sort of the bigger question is is whether the whether the institutions that that guide us are going to be able to kind of hold together uh, for the amount of time that it may take to to do this, and whether they may hold together if the response uh, is is outsized. In other words, not just people being restless, but uh, but we might see. Uh, unrest or violence or, 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 or things like that. I think that's those questions are on a lot of people's minds right now. Well, to Will's point, we, the American people, have a substantial amount of control about uh, how society will react. Now, people do need to adjust their expectations. There is a high probability, though not a certainty, that we won't know the result with any confidence on election night. Mm -hmm. That, as Will says, uh, it will take some days, uh, even in some scenarios, more than days, uh, to complete the count of the vote. <clears throat> On the other hand, well, so therefore, uh, the networks have to be careful about what they call, and people have to say, it's normal, it's okay for the count to change. It's one thing on the on the uh, night of the election, and as more votes are counted, the count is going to change. That's legitimate and normal, uh, and and we should expect it. And it may even be that the lead changes. It may even be that uh, one person looks like they're winning on election night and, and the other person uh, passes them, surpasses them as more votes are counted. There is a there is a, a plausibly likely scenario in which that happens uh, called a, a red mirage, mm -hmm. in which because Trump's voters are following his lead and avoiding mail-in ballots mm -hmm. and voting in person, uh, he could be leading on election night. And because so many of Biden's votes are coming in by mail, uh, which take longer to count, uh, that as days go by, uh, Biden uh, 
catches and uh, and passes Trump in terms of the vote, uh, so-called blue shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that happens, it's normal. It's uh, expected. Uh, it's it's just the you, you know you, you the election's not over until you count all the votes, uh, and Americans need to be patient about counting all the votes uh, in this election. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Bart Gelman of the Atlantic, and we'll get to more of your calls as well. Charles in Detroit, Kevin in Sterling Heights, Joe in Rochester Hills. We'll hear from you. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Right today on 1019 WDT, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I'm talking this hour with Barton Gelman. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and staff writer at The Atlantic. Wrote a recent piece that will appear in the November issue of The Atlantic, titled "The Election That Could Break America." We're talking about all the strains on uh, the institutions that hold our republic up as a result of the political and cultural tensions that we have right now, but also because of the behavior of the occupant of the White House and the things that he said about the voting that will take place in the country in just about three weeks, his insistence that he may not have to accept the outcome of that election uh, if he doesn't think that uh, it was handled the right way. An extraordinary admission for a president, something we haven't ever heard before. What does it mean, though? What will it mean on November 3rd? And what will it mean afterward? As always, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. We'll try to work them into the conversation. Uh, Bart, before we get back to phones, I want to give you a chance to talk about what regular people can do ahead of and on Election Day to try to make things go more smoothly and to make sure that uh, the the creaky machinery of our electoral process, as you describe it, doesn't result in some sort of crisis. Well, first of all, vote. that's right. Show if, up and vote. <laughs> show up and vote. If you if you uh, can, and if there's still time to register, I think we're getting close now, uh, then uh, sign up to be a poll worker. Uh, one of the reasons we have a potential problem here is the understaffing of polling places. Uh, normally, they rely on uh, seniors and retirees who are more worried this year about COVID uh, and more at risk than any other group. Uh, and the more people we have uh, helping things along on election day and election night, the better. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you spread the word to people you know that the count is going to change and evolve over time, that it's normal and not uh, something suspicious uh, as the president is going to portray it, that the count changes. Uh, think about your relationship to the vote. Uh, if you work in city government, uh, 
see if you if, if you have any influence over the deployment of police on election day because we need we need law enforcement to protect the vote uh, as its first responsibility hmm. uh, as a fundamental right. Uh, if you are in the military chain of command, do remember that you have an obligation to disobey unlawful orders. Uh, if you work uh, in the civil service uh, and you receive any uh, strange or unusual or suspicious kinds of orders on election day that are related to the election, remember your obligation to do the right thing, uh, even if you're asked to do the wrong thing. Uh, everyone has uh, some connection to the election and everyone uh, can be a good citizen about protecting it. Mm, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Kevin in Sterling Heights. Kevin, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey. Thanks for taking my call. Certainly. Um, you were talking about the Electoral College, and the Electoral College is a great bulwark against voter fraud. Hmm. If there were no Electoral College and there was just a national popular vote, a stolen vote in Maine would affect the outcome of the election in California. I, that's an interesting way to see it, Kevin. Um, well, go ahead. I think founding principles is that for every state that is solidly red or solidly blue, voter fraud in those states is basically meaningless. Hmm. And it's not even to be tried because no one, if, if California goes red, everyone's going to pretty much figure out Hmm. Yeah, and Kevin, that's an inter That's a really interesting take on the electoral college. Is not one uh, I've heard before. Uh, Bart, one of the things though that when his call reminds me of is that part of the conceit of the electoral college when it was conceived was to to, to try to iron out these dramatic differences between states, and it wasn't just. Uh, it's sort of the common concept of urban versus rural or big states versus small states. It was also the differences in the ways that the states themselves conducted balloting back then. I mean, the eligibility to be able to vote in states was really disparate uh, at that point. And I think one of the things that Kevin's kind of pointing out is that that's still maybe a concern, not that specific issue, but this idea of you know leavening the 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 differences between uh, states with something that is sort of a standard. I I'm not sure I agree, but it's an interesting it's an interesting defense of of the college itself. Well, uh, the question is raised in the question of, of voter fraud, and I want to say a word about that. Mm -hmm. uh, it is natural and intuitive to worry about whether uh, someone is going to vote who's not entitled to vote or whether someone will vote twice or three times. Uh, in actual practice, uh, empirically, voter fraud is vanishingly rare. Yeah. Uh, there was a good study, uh, the most comprehensive one I know, of uh, all federal elections uh, between 2000 and 2014. Uh, there were a uh, on the order of 1 billion, with a B, votes cast during that period, of which there were 31 cases of attempted voter fraud. Uh, 31 out of 1 billion. This is not a phenomenon that has the ability to change results. Right, right. Uh, and that's a really important point as we get closer to Election Day, too. This idea of voter fraud 
massive voter fraud that's being pushed by the president and and largely by the Republican Party is a myth. And uh, it is cynically designed, I think, to to undermine results and, and discourage people from uh, from taking part in the process, which uh, they should ignore and exercise their rights uh, to vote. Uh, on election day. Again, Kevin, really appreciate the call uh, and the interesting thoughts. Let's go to Tony in Shelby Township. Tony, welcome to the show. Yes. Go ahead. Hello? Yep. Go ahead, Tony. Yes. I'm li- I've been listening to your program on and off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I travel into Michigan every so often and uh, find this topic really interesting. Uh it's it's so saddening the way things are in America right now to see that America is so separated and there is no unity. And it doesn't even show that there's any possibility of unity right now. Mm. You know, they speak about, you know, bringing people together, but the action of the people doesn't show any of that. Mm. Uh, it's saddening to see all the life that's been taken and within the how would i say uh the law it's it's so segregated and it's so saddening that you know when a person within the law enforcement doesn't really enforce the law or protect the people and it causes mm-hmm. so much segregation it's mm-hmm. really saddening mm-hmm. now with with the election and mm-hmm. what's going on makes situation even worse yeah. uh neither one of the candidates is really you know, promoting unity are, you know, uniting the people to bring them together. Mm. Whichever one of them win, we won't really know until after a little while they send um, a mail-in ballot, uh, as one of your speak, one of your guests was speaking about before. Right. Right. My curiosity, though, in, in that is, you know, uh, they had spoken pertaining to Hillary Clinton that she had most of the vote uh, over Donald Trump, but eventually Donald Trump wins. Right. My confusion with that is, where does dem- democracy play in that? Because my right. understanding uh, of democracy, Tony, is, I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. Um, I, I want to. We've got about thirty or forty seconds. Uh, Bart, talk about the opportunity for unity coming out of this, I think that was a, a really important part of what Tony was talking about. What does the next president need to do to kind of fix what got broken here? Well, it's going to be it's going to be a tough job to unify the country because we are uh, more polarized than most times in our history. Mm-hmm. James Mattis, who was the defense secretary under Donald Trump, uh, has criticized him and said, uh, he's the only president in his lifetime who didn't even try to unify the people, right. uh, who conceives the office uh, as the leader of one half of the country over the other, uh, of, of, of uh, overpowering wrong ideas about our future. Now, uh, whether you believe him or not, Joe Biden has at least stated that he wants to be president of all Americans, that he wants to end the divisions, that he wants to work yeah. across uh, partisan lines. And we'll have to see whether that's something he's capable of doing if he wins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony suggested that neither candidate is talking that way, but certainly Joe Biden uh, has been more focused on it than, than Donald Trump. Okay, Bart Gelman of The Atlantic. It was really great to have you here. 
with us for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. And you can check out Bart's piece about the upcoming election in the November issue of The Atlantic. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. I'll be back tomorrow and hope you will too.